Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is General Jim Mattis, the Davies Family Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is, What Should We Do About Iran? And it was recorded on April 17th, 2016. You know, I was thinking as I was walking over here tonight, I'd, I'd been listening on the radio to some, uh, I guess you're called talking heads, although they, uh, they don't seem to have a lot of wisdom. But I was thinking as I came over here that Hoover's a place where we actually have dialogues and discussions. We don't just make assertions about the world. And I was thinking that it's kind of unusual in the States nowadays to have that sort of thing. Everyone seems kind of polarized. <clears throat> But what I, what I want to talk about tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is Iran, because isn't it interesting that a few months ago, Iran was on every newspaper, every news station, and today we hardly hear a word about Iran. And yet, when you think about Iran, it's not that all of a sudden the problem has gone away, that the situation has gotten better. If anything, uh, you're going to need the wine that you're pouring tonight when I get done explaining what I picked up <laughs> from assessing Iran. And the reason I want to do this is I'm going to put right up front my, my thesis that I hope to convince you of here tonight, and it's that the Iranian regime is the single most enduring threat to stability and peace in the Middle East, more so than ISIS, more so than Al-Qaeda. Uh, for all the attention they're getting right now, ISIS and Al-Qaeda have no state sponsor standing behind them to sustain them. Uh, I, right now, it's not Assad Syria that's a bigger threat, and it's a horrible impact on Europe and our civilization such as we know it in Europe. Uh, it is not that because, in fact, were it not for Iran, Assad would not be in power today. I, that, uh, it's not the Palestine-Israel issue either that keeps the Middle East on a boil. I believe that Iran is the single biggest and most enduring threat. A quick recall about Iran you go back to 1979, Khomeini's revolution installs the militant Islamist regime, and they adopt immediately a slogan, we've all heard it how many years now, how many decades, death to America. That's their calling card. Now, they take over our embassy, they hold our diplomats uh, for over a year, and sometime between 1979 and 83, it's debatable about which year, they declare war on the United States. Uh, by 1983, uh, what they do, their militia in Lebanon, Lebanon, Lebanese Hezbollah, blows up our embassy, uh, blows up the French paratrooper barracks, and blows up the U.S. Marine peacekeeper barracks there, killing hundreds of people. And as a result, in 1984, during President Reagan's administration, Secretary of State George Shultz declares Iran a state sponsor of terrorism. And they are, to this day, still considered by the U.S. government a state sponsor of terrorism. And it is strange when you hear the sitting American president uh, say something like that Saudi Arabia and Iran are going to have to learn to cohabitate here in this area, as if you can tell people in a neighborhood that's got a wild animal prowling the streets, they've just got to get used to that sort of thing. You can understand why the leaders in some of the countries over there disagree with, uh, with our view of how it's got to go forward. Now, if we fast forward from 79 and 83, 84. Look at last July in 2015 uh, in Vienna, we see China, France, Germany, the Russian Federation, 
the United Kingdom and the United States rolling out the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, otherwise known as the Iran Agreement. This evening, what I want to discuss is the purpose of that agreement, characterize the Iranians' behavior since it went into effect, and then talk a little bit about the way ahead for us. The purpose of the agreement, and we can go back and read a whole lot of uh, information out there, I believe that I could have made a stronger argument for entering into the negotiation than the American administration made. But the purpose for it goes back actually to 2002 in the George Bush administration when the United States determined that Iran's nuclear weapons program took precedence when it was recognized that the chances were growing that Iran could actually develop a nuclear weapon. So the strategic goal was to make the world safer by preventing or delaying progress on that weapons program. Now, you'll hear it called a nuclear program. It is not a nuclear program. It is a nuclear weapons program. So starting in 2010, the Secretary of State Clinton uh, orchestrated very broad international economic sanctions to bring pressure on Iran. And the goal of that pressure ladies and gentlemen, was to force Iran to come to the negotiating table in order to limit the Iranians to an internationally supervised, non-military nuclear program. By 2013, <clears throat> President Rouhani is elected, and he is in Iran, and he is supposedly a moderate. The problem with characterizing someone a moderate in Iran is only the supreme leader who is not a moderate, can approve the slate of who runs. I don't care if it's for school board, mayor, anything. He approves every one of them, and hundreds get turned down every year. So he is probably, Rouhani was probably the most moderate of any of those folks, but he was not a moderate. The Rouhani government then negotiated the nuclear agreement with what was called the P5 plus one, those nations I just mentioned and the JCPOA, or the agreement that we have, is the result. Now, formal implementation began in mid-January. You still saw a lot in the news at that point, but it was dying down. And, for example, the uh, Iranians removed the enriched uranium, nearly all of it, 25,000 uh, pounds of it. Uh, they did, at the same time in the UN, took seven prior UN national excuse me, UN Security Council resolutions that imposed economic sanctions, and they rescinded them. And supposedly, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to hear, remember snapback? We used to hear about if they mess up, we can snap these back to them. Uh, basically, we could reimpose them in the event of, and I quote here, significant non-performance by Iran. Significant, by the way, is not defined. So the relief was given for a pause in one threat. In other words, we gave them relief from those economic sanctions for pausing one threat, a nuclear weapons program. But there's four other threats from Iran. One of those is the maritime threat. You've heard them talk about shutting down the Straits of Hormuz, mining the waters. Another one's ballistic missile, more in the news here lately. Another one is cyber, uh, which we've all seen uh, going on uh, here in the uh, not-too-distant past. And the other one is one we, in the military, we call QMSP. Only the military can come up with that acronym. But basically, it's Quds Force, Jerusalem Force, and there's some of their special forces. It's MOIS, 
Secret Service. It's their surrogates and proxies like Lebanese Hezbollah. Basically, it's the terrorism. Five threats. They delayed one of them under the agreement, and we rescinded many of the economic sanctions under all five. Okay, So you can imagine, if you're Israel, if you're our Arab partners in the region, what you feel like that they've just had that many uh, imposed sanctions pulled off of them. Our country's view on Iran as recently as 2012, this is under the current American administration, was summed up in a State Department report that said they were seeing a, quote, a marked resurgence of Iran's state sponsorship of terrorism. And when they got down to specifics, they said Iranian terrorism and Lebanese Hezbollah, quote, is reaching a tempo unseen since the 1990s. That's all part of the record. We're all entitled to our own opinions. That, what I've told you, is all the record of what happened in the time leading up to the signing of that piece of paper. Certainly attacking Israeli tourists and murdering them in Bulgaria, murdering Saudi uh, diplomats in uh, Yemen and in Pakistan, and trying to murder Ambassador Adel, the Saudi ambassador to Washington, D.C., less than two miles from the White House on a Saturday night in Georgetown, gives some idea of the kind of track record of, a, of this regime without a nuclear weapon. Now you can understand, too, why some people say with a nuclear weapon, they'd be even more unbridled in their efforts to uh, create chaos. The American administration's argument was that an Iranian nuke was such a dangerous game changer that we had to subordinate everything else to delaying the nuclear program. It's not an impossible position to take. It's understandable. But how did they decide to delay it? There were basically two options. One was military, and one was through diplomacy. And then you'd have to argue on the negotiation whether or not we came out well on the diplomatic side. Frankly, if we'd had to use military option, we probably would have had to done it repeatedly. Why? Because using the military option, this was an industry spread all over the country, universities, cities, deep underground. We probably could have delayed them between 18 months and two years before we would have had to do a reattack. And that was, that was just the reality, since we weren't going to march in, occupy the country, and dig everything out from, uh, from deep underground. So the diplomatic approach was used because they were shooting for a longer delay, a 10, 12, 15 year delay. Without the pause, and despite Iran's denial and deception, Iran could get a weapon, and we thought, thought that would be such a jeopardy to our security interests, it would risk global economic blackmail, since how would you stop Iran then from mining the straits if they threatened to use a nuke? And of course, if they had one, it would endanger the survival of our allies, Israeli and Arab partners. Our objective then was to prevent Iran from getting the nuke, strengthening the non-proliferation efforts by the Americans, increase stability in the Middle East, and improve America's global standing. So how would we characterize, after all that's said and done, how to characterize Iran's response to the agreement? First of all, Iran has shut down its plutonium reactor, uh, poured cement into the core, and shipped out its enriched uranium. Yet it remains the single most belligerent actor in the Middle East. As the commander of U.S. Central Command, every morning that I woke up, and remember my area has Egypt and Lebanon, it's got Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Pakistan, Syria, Iraq, um, it's got uh, all sorts of places. I think I've told some of you before I was once asked by the Vice President, Jim, you know why you got this job? 
I said, no, Mr. Vice President, I've, I've wondered about it. He said, we couldn't find anybody else dumb enough to take it. Yeah. <clears throat> Every morning, though, waking up with that region, I had three things on my mind. First, when I went in, as I went in and started going through all the overnight reports and the intel reports, the first three things were Iran, Iran, and Iran. And I say this because their behavior remains con remained consistent then and today with the Iranian behavior since 1979, the year that I first, by the way, sailed into those waters as an infantry company commander on an AVM fib. I want to go through some data points with you, and this, this, if this gets too long, one of you in back just wave your head and say, I surrender, I got it, okay? <laughs> first of all, the Republican Guard commander, he, he, he's like their elite forces commander, a guy named Jafari, has stated in the last couple months, Iran is preparing for all-out war with the United States. That's hardly the words of a military man who's under control, absolute control of the supreme leader, who says that, in fact, they may have come out with a more stable Middle East. They have conducted ballistic missile attacks, ladies and gentlemen, in October and November of last year and just last month. Why did they do it? The UN, one of the UN SCRs that was rescinded, the Security Council resolutions rescinded, said you will not fire ballistic missiles into the air. You will not test them. In a last-minute concession during the agreement when uh, Iran threatened to walk out, the Americans, uh, to some of our allies, to France's dismay, uh, agreed that only ballistic missiles were prohibited from being tested if they were specifically designed to carry a nuclear weapon. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know why you would put all the effort into a ballistic missile that goes a long ways to put 250 pounds of TNT into it. It doesn't make any sense. It's got to be carrying something a lot bigger than that. But right now, they are saying that they have not violated the letter of the law, and I believe they are correct, because they declared that it was not for a nuclear, to carry a nuclear weapon. Third point, they sought and received from Russia sophisticated new arms. They're not putting the money they're getting into their people, into education, into health care for their people. They're buying anti-aircraft systems, that sort of thing, more weapons, and they're spreading more of the money into Yemen and down into uh, Syria. A fourth point, they conducted cyber attacks on the United States. It just resulted, by the way, in the U.S. indicting seven Iranians in the Iranian government for conducting those cyber attacks on us. This is all since we signed the JCPOA with them. They doubled down on support to Assad's murderous regime. They are keenly aware, ladies and gentlemen, that the fall of Assad would be the biggest strategic setback in the last 30 years for the mullahs in Tehran. They've increased the flow of arms into Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Yemen, and to Lebanese Hezbollah. In Yemen, the, in the last three months, the French Navy, Australian Navy, and U.S. Navy have all seized dows carrying tons of ammunition and weapons to Yemen, where they're trying to set up something like Lebanese Hezbollah with their Houthi allies down in Yemen, which would give them a back door into the kingdom. The Republican Guard commander is openly boasting of Tehran's control over four capitals, by the way, Beirut, Baghdad, Damascus, and Sana'a. Fortunately, the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates fought when they went for Sana'a, and they've been thrown off their game, and right now, that looks like it's going into a negotiation that will be good for us, the good guys. Bahrain and Jordan were specifically and publicly targeted by the Quds Force commander, our old friend Soleimani, 
openly calling for annexation of Bahrain. You remember when Saddam Hussein called for annexation of Kuwait, what happened? The Republican Guard General proposes erasing Israel off the map. That is a consistent theme, by the way. A tenth point, the Supreme Leader just two weeks ago, ten days ago, said, quote, those who say that the future lies in negotiation, not in missiles, are either ignorant or traitors, unquote. I think we should take him at his word. He does not believe in the negotiations. And when President Obama characterized the Iranian regime recently, their responses as respecting the letter but violating the spirit of the agreement, General Farouzabadi, that he is the chief of staff of the Iranian Armed Forces, contemptuously said, we studied the details of the nuclear agreement and don't have any information about its spirit. In other words, he rebuffed it. And so thus endeth for now any moderate Iranian response that the American administration had been hoping for. So where is the United States right now? First of all, we're in a strategy-free mode. Washington is confused. <clears throat> I calls them like I see them. Uh, Washington's confused, and I don't believe it's invested in strategy. We are shifting our focus at times from one region to another. Uh, remember the pivot to the Pacific that so alarmed our NATO allies and our Middle East allies? Remember that, well, no, we're focused on the Senkaku Islands, the fracas between Japan and China. No, wait, it's not that after all, it's Crimea. No, it's not Crimea. We're okay with Crimea being gone. It's the Donuts Basin. It's, it's eastern Crimea, it's eastern Ukraine. Uh, then we're attacking ISIS in Iraq a little bit, but we're using gradual escalation that allows ISIS to kind of adapt. ISIS, it still holds to this day, controls more territory than Israel and Jordan combined. They've been set back, but not by much. The JCPOA is an arms agreement that is designed to increase stability, decrease proliferation, improve our global standing. Well, let's look at did it increase stability. In the outcome, the increase in the regional arms race has been obvious. Matter of fact, Saudi Arabia just passed Russia in putting money out for, for weaponry. Now, if you think Saudi Arabia would be arming because things got more stable, you don't understand that country. They're under a lot of pressure internally right now. We had to send our Secretary of Defense out, some called him the Secretary of Reassurance. We had to send him out to immediately assure Israel and the Middle East nations, <clears throat> our partners, <clears throat> excuse me, that we would provide them more authority to buy our combat-tested weapons. We turn out, still turn out the best in the world. Unfortunately, because we made that agreement and we're saying we'll sell you more weapons, but at the same time we're giving a kind of a, kind of a you know, get along with Iran kind of message, the impression in the region is the U.S. is withdrawing. Now, they have two views of this. The best one is that the U.S. is indifferent to the challenge of Israel and the Arab nations having to deal with Iran. That's the best explanation. The worst one, by the way, that I hear, and by the way, I'm on my way back out there again this weekend, is the U.S. has made common cause with Iran, Russia, and Assad. And that is picking up traction because they can't believe we could be doing some of the things we're doing if we didn't have this in our design, in our plan. And when we talk about ISIS, we oftentimes get so focused on it, we forget that ISIS has no state sponsor for terrorism, I mentioned earlier. But furthermore, I would just point out 
that ISIS is an excuse for Iranian mischief, okay, an excuse. What is the one country in the region that has not suffered any ISIS attack? Iran. Now, why would that be if, in fact, ISIS was some al-Qaeda anti-Iran terrorist organization? I mean, they've set off bombs everywhere from the Suez Canal, they're in Libya, they've gone after Turkey, they've gone after Bahrain, yeah, I can go on and on. But the bottom line is that ISIS is an excuse for Iran's mischief. It is not an enemy of Iran. Here in the, back here in the U.S. Congress, uh, it took no action. It took no action against ISIS. It didn't like the uh, AUMF, the Authorization of Military Force, that uh, the President sent to the Congress to go after ISIS. Instead of passing their own, they took no action on it. They took no action in the Congress to strengthen the standby economic sanctions in the event Iran did cheat. They've taken no action to add intelligence dollars to our budget so that we can keep a sharper eye on Iran. And I would just tell you that the last point I would make on this is that the snapback of sanctions is highly unlikely. The Americans can walk away from the agreement if they wish, but there'll be no snapback by our European allies. And I defer to Dr. Shockey, an expert on, on our, our European allies, where they stand. But I don't believe they would ever go back, and U.S. sanctions alone would be ineffective. So the bottom line on the American situation, the next president, ladies and gentlemen, is going to inherit a real mess. That's all there is to it. So why would the U.S. take such a gamble based on the situation as we see right now? I mean, first, certainly, the President Obama could be right. Uh, the mullahs who want it both ways could be forced into a catch-22. By both ways, I mean the mullahs would like to see Iran look like South Korea and North Korea. North Korea in the sense of controlling all information, all thought, all political power, but South Korea in terms of gaining an economic vitality that actually helps them to remain in power. But as revealed in Jeff Goldberg's recent interview with the president, by his own admission, President Obama is a very different sort of president, and he sees his actions in very different light. And without being in any way disrespectful to the president of the United States, the administration has a remarkable ability to absolve itself of responsibility for anything that's happened. And that is simply, you cannot allow that when you look at the role that we've been playing over there, both action and inaction. For a sitting U.S. president to see our allies as freeloaders is nuts, ladies and gentlemen. That's what he said in the, in the article, and it immediately resonated from Paris to Tokyo, from Canberra, all the way back into Brussels, and certainly throughout the Middle East. You know, I, I, I would, was reading, uh, it first, uh, Jeff Goldberg's interview came into me in the early morning. I was working out, and so I, I hit, I was very long, so I hit print, <clears throat> and I went over and worked out for a while, I got off the machine, I started reading it, and I was afraid that I'd, I'd inserted some of Donald Trump's words <laughs> into it. And I, so I went back to it, I was thinking, boy, I can't even, you know, I'm not very administratively adept, as my aide-de-camp used to tell me, but I'm not that crazy, am I? And I went through it, I did a page count, no, the page is all mat, but it was absolutely crazy to me that both Trump and, and Obama, President Obama would be saying the same thing about our allies. I thought, I thought it was kooky. 
that we, America, in this age when we need allies more than ever, when 9-11 should have taught us that in a globalized world, no nation can stand alone and protect itself. And here we were showing contempt for allies, some of whom, by the way, have lost more boys per capita than America fighting alongside us. Interesting, that's arithmetic too. I'd be surprised right now if Obama is proven right in his assessment uh, of the Tehran regime, uh, basically the, the one that's holding the Iranian people hostage, if somehow he believes that Iran is on the cusp of becoming a modern, responsible nation, I don't think so. And as far as our allies go, I think if Prime Minister Cameron ever speaks to him again, it'll be, a, it'll be a, as he bites his tongue, considering the way we've dealt with our allies. A second point for why we would, why we would do this, um, why we would sign up, maybe it's the best we could get, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe everybody knew we wouldn't really use the military option. After the Syria red line fiasco, where we gave uh, a red line and some of our allies in Europe were actually moving their planes in to support us when we attacked once Assad had used uh, chemical weapons on his people, pulled the rug out from underneath them. I was sitting one night, very late at night, my little staff, the, this uh, foreign leader staff in the Middle East, <clears throat> finally at about midnight, he said, let's talk alone. So all the staffs walked out. He took his headdress off, threw it down. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, just hang in there. We'll figure this thing out. And he said, we knew each other for many, many years. And he said, well, you know, it must be a very long table. Mm. I said, what are you talking about, Your Highness? And he says, uh, well, your president keeps saying that the military option's on the table. So I looked all the way down the table. <laughs> and he says, you know, Jim, we'd known each other a long time. He said, you know, I pulled out my binoculars then and started looking down the table. And he says, I can't see the military option. Now, ladies and gentlemen, from a dear friend and ally, someone who'd stuck with us through thick and thin over there, he was letting us know and know, letting me know in no uncertain terms that our threat of military power was not being taken seriously. And let's just make it very clear that absent a calamitous attack on the United States, no one believes the administration will, uh, will act. And if we were to take such an attack, it would show the Obama policy to now be in shambles, which would be very, very bad for our security and our allies' security. A third point is maybe the folks in the American administration think the moderates can win, but again, Rouhani is not a moderate, although he needs the moderates' folks, their votes, in order to stay in power in Tehran's internecine political scene. But the judiciary and security forces, ladies and gentlemen, are plenty strong, and they are going to get stronger too as the economic sanctions come off. So it's not like the moderates are going to get stronger and the security forces somehow become sort of weaker in, in relation to them. That's gonna take time anyway for the country to get better. And I would just tell you that in the Iranian constitution, it says we are a revolutionary state and not a nation state. It's right in their constitution. So you gotta be careful about telling people that we know better than them what they're going to turn into. We also hurt the reformists by signing the agreement because the reformists thought they had to give up the quest for nuclear weapons completely in order to rejoin the, the, the nations of the world. By doing this, the reformists had the rug pulled out from underneath them in Tehran. They, we did benefit, like I said, with the 25,000 pounds of enriched uranium being pulled out, cementing the core of the plutonium, that sort of thing. So we've got a plus there, but also a plus is the intrusion, if you read the agreement, it's 159 pages long, read it twice, 
Uh, it is written clearly with the expectation that Iran will cheat. Yeah, that comes through loud and clear. So the, the imperfect inspection regime that we have, it's not perfect, but it will help us should it go to a military uh, conflict. We will have better targeting as a result of that. So there is an advantage there as well. But in terms of strengthening America's global standing among European and Middle Eastern nations alike, enough said, the sense is that America now has less relevance and less influence in the Middle East than any time in the last 40 years. Uh, the way ahead, I think we're going to have to recognize we have an imperfect arms control agreement. And second, that what we achieved was a nuclear pause, not a nuclear halt. So we're going to have to plan for the worst. In the military, we say we always plan for the worst, hope for the best, but hope is not a plan. In light of the other four threats I mentioned, the 12-year delay of nuke, I think each of the, thing, the other threats have got to be addressed when they use them. If they drop mines in the water, if they do a terrorist attack, we've got to address each of those things. And we do have some time to get our act together, ladies and gentlemen, because figure that Iran has a lot to gain by not cheating for about a year or two. They get a lot of money. So for a year or two, we've probably got time, if we get our act together, to start putting together basically what I would call an insurance policy to ensure that if something goes wrong, we are ready for it. And we're not just hoping that this is all going to play out well. In the region, we can integrate an awful lot of the militaries out there. I've used this example before. It is very hard to see a ballistic missile coming at you like this, straight at you. But your neighbor next door can see it arching over. We know exactly where it's coming from. We know when they fired it. And it will allow us to make retaliation and perhaps even stop the cycle of violence early if we can integrate all of our allies out there. By the way, did you notice that Israel, just a month ago, month and a half ago, opened under UN auspices in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates, an office of renewable energy? Ladies and gentlemen, that is a very, very good sign. What is happening is the Iranians are creating the antibodies that are actually, as one Arab foreign minister turned around, looked me in the eye and said, we have now more in common with Israel's foreign policy than America's. A sad thing, but it's not all, all negative, as you can see. History does teach us that nations with allies defeat nations without allies. So at this point, we need to make certain we're doing everything we can to tie together with our friends and partners out in the region, Arab and Israeli, restore the political uh, part of the Israeli-American connection. Furthermore, Saudi Arabia just banned last week from their waters, any vessel whose last three ports of entry were in Iran. <clears throat> that is going to be very hurtful for Iran shipping oil because Iranian oil is not being pumped at the levels that make it all that telling, and nobody wants to mess with the big dog, and that's Saudi Arabia when it comes to shipping oil. So there are other things that Iran has done that has created antibodies that are going to help us. I think we've got to hold at risk Iran's nuclear weapons program in the future, and a congressional oversight committee should be put together with Republican and Democrat members from Foreign Relations Committee, from Intel, from Armed Services, all of them meeting and holding hearings every so often. What are they doing? Bring it back up, assess it, and get the spirit of the Congress to be something other than playing a spectator role and not a very good one, and have them start giving uh, some uh, legislation that helps the executive branch obviously target our satellites and our spies and re-engage our, our, uh, our spies, our, our spy agencies with other spy agencies. And remember what works so well 
in the Cold War with radio-free Europe. Let's get radio-free Farsi going and break the Iranian people away. Let the Iranian people know we do not have a problem with you. We understand you. We know you're held hostage. Let's start fracturing them from the mullahs, the bearded ones there in Tehran, and, and make certain we have very modest expectations when we engage diplomatically with Iran. We cannot go into any more of these gambles. We, we can take risk. We take risk in war. We take risk in peace. But we should not be gambling the farm based upon the dealings with, uh, with a country that is very, very clearly uh, violating the spirit, as our president put it, of the agreement. The Mideast future, as all this is going on, is going to be ghastly. There's no other way to describe it. We have got to remain engaged out there because vacuums are going to be filled by Russia, who's back for the first time since Kissinger checkmated them out of the region. They're going to be filled by terrorists, and they're going to be filled by Iran. We don't need to leave vacuums. Look at Syria, look at Libya, and you see what's happening. It doesn't mean we have to send 100,000 troops in for 10 years. There are ways to work by, with, and through our allies. But recognize today that the violent jihadist terrorists, two brands, the Sunni, the Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Shia side, the Iranian-sponsored Lebanese Hezbollah, I believe the Lebanese Hezbollah is by far the longer-term and more enduring threat. Let's recognize that what we have with Iran is an arms control agreement, imperfect as it is, but it is not a friendship treaty. So no more gambling. Uh, be responsible. Come up with a, uh, I would call it an insurance policy. Make certain we know how to stand with our partners and take our own side in the fight. And we're going to have to rediscover our strategic sense, ladies and gentlemen, and, and use pragmatism and idealism in, in tandem together, balance as we go forward into this very, very difficult time. And all of us rallying behind the next president, Republican or Democrat, to say we stand united. It will be difficult, but it is absolutely necessary. I think that right now we have to wait and see who, it, who follows the supreme leader. That will be the indicator of where Iran is going. The next supreme leader, watch that very closely. And otherwise, as we say in the service, keep your powder dry. <laughs> May I take your question? For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.